tonight's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. As ye come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being spiritual houses, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not his people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Lucy, for reading for us. Uh, let me add my welcome to Peter's welcome. Uh, my name is also Peter. Uh, there's a lot of Peters uh, at Uni Church, um, And we're also studying uh, the letter of First Peter. So we'd like to make it as simple as possible for you all. I hope you can keep up. If this is your first time with us, we are so, so glad uh, that you've been able to join us. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. Uh, I'm also one of the pastors of All Saints Church. Uh, we meet on the Lisburn Road at half 11. Uh, you'd be more than welcome to join us there as well. I'm guessing we've got quite a few freshers in the room, uh, maybe some second years who are kind of like freshers, uh, because last year it was so weird. Uh, you're especially welcome if you're a fresher. Are there any uh, Ballyclare High School alumni in the room? Any, anybody? Yes, there's two, three. Oh, Lucy, you're in the Ballyclare. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> I, I'm also a, a Ballyclare High School alumni. Oh, my brother's over there as well. I didn't see him. He's hidden behind the pillar. Uh, Ballyclare High School people, the best people in the world. Um, it was a long, long time ago when I was there. That's who I am. Let me ask you, who are you? We're beginning a new academic year here in Belfast. And whether you've just started university or you've started a new job, that's a question that you're going to get asked a lot over these next couple of weeks, isn't it? Who are you? Of course, when we ask someone that question, when someone asks that question of us, we want to know more than just someone's name, don't we? Seems to me that university especially is one of those times when people wrestle with that question, who am I? And lots of people take their time at university to try and find themselves, reinvent themselves, to define themselves anew. Who are you? Who do you want to be? Maybe you're the athlete striving for success on the field, working hard on your fitness and your skill to be the best that you can be. Maybe you're the academic. Maybe you're the musician the dramatic person, the good person, the hard worker, the slacker. Maybe you're the bad boy who plays by his own rules. Maybe you're the outcast, and you don't really know where you fit in the order of things. Our world tells us that we have to craft our identities 
for ourselves. And while at first glance that sounds incredibly liberating, it's really interesting. Uh, Psychologists and sociologists tell us that many people, especially here in the West, in their teens, in their 20s, and in their 30s, are undergoing what they call an identity crisis. We're told that we can be whoever we want to be. We can be whatever we want to be. And ultimately, that cripples us. We thought a little bit about this two weeks ago. If you were with us, you can watch it on YouTube if you weren't. We today in 2021 are richer. We will live longer. We will spend more time in education. We will travel more, and we will travel further than any generation in history. And yet, we've never been more anxious We've never been more miserable. And at the heart of that misery and that anxiety is a lack of purpose and a longing for identity. You maybe didn't realize it, but when Lucy just read that Bible passage to us, that passage was all about identity and purpose. The identity that Jesus offers to those who follow him and the purpose that that provides for their life. Peter, the author of this book of the Bible, tells us that the Christian has a deep, unshakable, eternal identity. Unlike the identities that we craft for ourselves, this identity is constant. It's not something fleeting. It's not something that changes based on our own achievements. It's not something that is based on how others perceive us. It's an unchanging identity because it's an identity that is given to the Christian, not something they earn. It's an identity that's given not because we've done something, but because of someone else. This identity isn't given because we've done something, but it is an identity that calls on us to do something in response. In other words, it does give us a purpose. And you might not realize it, but that is really, really good news. Because it means that for the Christian, it means that their identity doesn't rest on their activity. Their identity is based on the identity of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of their entire life is shaped by Him. Now, that might all sound very complicated, but it's actually incredibly simple. And Peter explains it to us brilliantly. He explained it to his first readers, and he explains it to us by extension, using a series of images from the Old Testament those 39 books written before Jesus was born. And he uses those Old Testament images to describe who Jesus is, and therefore who Jesus' people are, and therefore what they ought to do. So we're going to look at the case that Peter builds in this passage. And as we look at those verses in detail, I'm going to pray very quickly, and I'd love it if you prayed with me, because we need God's help to understand God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your written word and through this preached word that we would meet the living word and that through him we would live. 
And we pray all this in his name. Amen. It would be a huge help to me and a huge help to yourself if you had a Bible and if you could open it up at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, whether that's a digital Bible or a physical Bible. If you don't have a Bible app on your phone, see if you just go onto Google and Google 1 Peter 2. The first link that comes up will be Bible Gateway, and that'll take you right to the passage we're in. It'll take you to the translation we're using. So please feel free to do that. As I say, it'll be a help to you, and it'll be a help to me as we work our way through. Peter begins this section of his letter by talking about stones, which is a bit strange. He talks about living stones and spiritual houses. It's all a little bit weird. It's on the screen behind me as well, I think. There we go. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, being called stones doesn't really sound like a good thing, does it? You know, if someone said, oh, you're, you're like a stone, you would think, well, that's lifeless, dead. But Peter says the Christian is a living stone. Why does he use this strange image? Well, like we'll see again and again in this passage, he uses this image because it's based on the Old Testament. See that in verse 6? For in Scripture it says, we're not going to look at at all of these references, but in these seven verses we're looking at, Peter uses 17 different Old Testament references from six different Old Testament books to explain who Jesus is, who his followers are, and what they ought to do. If you're a Christian, you've got to get your head around the Old Testament, because it is so important for understanding the New Testament, because the New Testament never stops talking about it. Peter is a brilliant example of that. Some people think that the Old Testament is irrelevant, not important, written for different people in a different time, and so it has nothing to say to us. Peter says the exact opposite. In chapter 1, of his letter, he says that the Old Testament was written for Christians. He says that the prophets, the people writing the Old Testament, were writing for us. Here's what he says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, things into which angels long to look. So don't disregard the Old Testament. It's so important for Christians. So let's look at verse 6 to 8. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. If you've grown up in Christian circles, maybe a Christian family or just have Christian friends, you've maybe heard this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone before. Uh, we have a song that we often sing here at Uni Church. I don't think we're singing it tonight. Uh, that's, that's all about Jesus being the cornerstone. What on earth does that mean? I have absolutely no idea how houses are built today. But in the ancient world, when you were building a house, You'd plot out your land, you'd you'd see roughly where it's going to go, and the very first stone that you would set down, the very first brick, would be called the cornerstone. And you would start with this corner, and you would put a few rocks on top of it, and then you'd build one wall this way and one wall this way. You always started with a corner. You didn't start with one wall here 
and then one wall here, and then hoped that they sort of matched up. You always started with the corner, because that was the most important stone. It determined the shape of the rest of the house. It determined the stability of the entire house. And back in Bibles, the Bible's time, they used bricks uh, to build like the main walls, but the cornerstone was never a brick because the bricks weren't strong enough. They had to be hand cut from a quarry. And as you can imagine, stones cut from a quarry um, by hand, you know, no two are exactly the same. And so whenever you were building your house, you would spend ages looking through the stones that the builders have provided you, looking for that perfectly cut cornerstone, because that stone determined the way the rest of the building, how the rest of the building would look. It was so, so important. It's the most important part of the building. Peter quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus arrived on earth. And in Isaiah, it says that one day, God would lay a cornerstone in Zion. And Zion is just another name for the city of Jerusalem. God said to Isaiah, I'm going to lay a cornerstone in Jerusalem, but the stone will be rejected. See, if you were a builder, as I said, you would, you would scurry around looking at all the stones the builders have got you, and you would try and find the perfect cornerstone, and that's the one that you would build your house with. God says, the cornerstone that I lay in Zion, the builders will reject it. They'll pick it up, look at it, and they'll throw it away. But the stone that they reject will become the cornerstone. It becomes the foundation, the thing that everything else is built upon. He says that those who reject that cornerstone will be put to shame. And Peter says Jesus is that cornerstone. It's a warning for any of us. We simply disregard Jesus. Peter says, in the end, not going to end up well for you. You'll be put to shame. Some people don't want to consider Jesus. Some people don't want to trust Jesus. Some people don't want to follow Jesus because they know that it will cost them. They know that it might mean rejection by your friends. For some people, it might mean rejection from your family. Let me tell you, that is absolutely right. Jesus said again and again, whoever would follow me must take up their cross and follow me. Christians follow a crucified Messiah. And as the foundation of their faith, what he looks like is what the Christian's life will look like. Suffering. Glory to come, absolutely, but suffering. Think about other leaders of world religions. Muhammad, Muhammad was a warrior who took many wives and as many lands as he could conquer. Buddha was a monk who left his wife and children to pursue a life of meditation. But Christians follow the crucified one. Jesus warned, the world will hate you because it hated me first. Jesus' argument and Peter's argument is that as Jesus is, so are his followers. The pattern of Jesus is the pattern of the Christian life. And that is the point that Peter makes in a very sort of clever way in these verses. 
there are four really interesting parallels that Peter draws here. I've got a little table that's gonna, uh, that'll show you them. In verse 4, Peter says that Jesus is this living stone, and then in verse 5, he says that the Christians are living stones. In verse 5, he says that Jesus is chosen and precious. And in verse 9, he says that the Christian is a part of God's chosen people. In verse 6, he says that Jesus is the cornerstone of the house that God is building. And in verse 5, he says that believers are being built into that spiritual house. In verse 6, it says that Jesus will not shame those who trust in him. And in verse 7, Peter says that the Christian will ultimately be honored. Peter's argument is that the Christian's entire identity is all tied up in Jesus. And so, yes, Christians will share in Jesus' suffering. He's the cornerstone. He's what everything's built upon. They will face the rejection that Jesus faced, but they too will be honored, just as Jesus was honored. They have been chosen, elected, adopted into God's family. They will not be put to shame. The Christian's identity is tied up completely in Jesus' identity. The Christian is a living stone built upon the cornerstone that is Jesus. What sort of house is God building with all of these living stones? Well, Peter tells us twice in these seven verses. If you go back to verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says something similar in verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, if you thought the whole living stones imagery was weird, well, this is even weirder, isn't it? What does this mean? A spiritual house? Spiritual sacrifices? Royal priesthood? Holy na- what, what is Peter talking about? Well, again, just like the stones, Peter is pointing back to the Old Testament. And these labels, spiritual house, spiritual sacrifices, royal priesthood, holy nation, are the labels that God gave to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. These labels tell us who God's people are and what God's people are to do. In other words, It tells us the identity and the purpose that God's people share. First of all, he calls them a spiritual house uh, back in verse, uh, or up in verse 5. We've thought a little bit about Christians being built into that house, and so you can see why Peter talks about living stones and uh, households. But in the Bible, house is also a family. In the Bible, the word house and household are the exact same word. When we hear the word house, we usually think of, you know, the building that we live in. We hear household, we think the people in that house. We've thought a lot about households, haven't we, over the last 18 months, uh, and what households mean, and who's in a household, and who isn't in a household, and all all these wonderful things. We're, We're starting to think a little bit more biblically there, because in the Bible, house and household is first and foremost people, not a place. This house that the Christian is being built into. It's not a family of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual family. It's a spiritual house. 
It's not talking about a house that's like a, like a ghost house. It's a, a house, household, a spiritual family. The Bible talks again and again of the Christian being adopted into God's family. The Christian is a member of the spiritual house of God. And in verse 5 and verse 9, he says that the um, Christians are royal and holy priests. A royal priesthood and a holy priesthood. Now, of the entire uh, sermon this evening, this is the trickiest bit. This is the bit where you're going to need to pay the most attention, and this is the bit I'm going to need you to work hardest with me for, but I, I promise that by the end of it, it will all be pretty much clear, I hope. So, are you ready? We're going we're to work a little bit hard here. Because of the way that some brands of Christianity understand priesthood, there's a bit of confusion about what being a priest actually means. The Bible is very, very clear, we see it right here, that every Christian, everyone who places their trust in the Lord Jesus is a member of the priesthood. If you're a Christian, you are a priest. What on earth does that mean? Well, you see, in some forms of Christianity, the priest is a mediator. He stands between God and the people, and he stands between the people and God. He represents God to the people, and he represents the people before God. That's why our Roman Catholic friends confess their sins to a priest. However, when we look at what priests did in the Old Testament, they didn't really mediate between God and man. The high priest did once a year. But Jesus is the great high priest, and that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, if you know your New Testament. And so the consistent message of the whole Bible is that all of God's people are a part of God's priesthood. And so evangelical Christians, people, Christians who hold the Bible up as their highest authority, have championed for 500 years this teaching of the priesthood of all believers. Fantastic stuff. That's exactly what the Bible says. However, when most people hear the priesthood of all believers, they think it means we don't need priests to get to God because we're all priests. Priests get you to God. We're all priests. We all have access to God. That's what most people think it means. But a priest's job was never to get you to God. The high priest did that once a year, but that was not the primary job of a priest. The great news of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is that because of Jesus, we all have access to God if we trust in Jesus, but we don't have access to God because we're all priests. Does that make sense? Let, let me say that again. All Christians are priests. All Christians have access to God but they don't have access to God because they are all priests. Does that make sense? Are you all with me, roughly? Hopefully it'll become clear. So, being a priest isn't about having access to God. Well, what is it about? Here's, your, here's the definition. A priest is someone who declares the forgiveness of sins and the praise of God through sacrifice. 
I'm going to say that again too. It's on the screen. A priest is someone who declares forgiveness of sins and the praise of God through sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, there were specific priests, uh, people who did that as their full-time job, but it was also the job of every Israelite to do this, to tell people that God offers forgiveness, to offer praises to God, sacrificial praise. How do we know that was the job of every Old Testament believer? Because Peter is quoting from the Old Testament when he says this. It's right there in Exodus 19. The priesthood of all believers is an Old Testament idea as well. So there's a little bit of background about where the sort of confusion uh, around priest and priesthoodness. You sort of, the word priest has sort of lost all meaning, haven't it? Because we've said it so many times. A priest is not someone who gets you to God. A priest is someone who declares the forgiveness of sins and the praise of God through sacrifice. Now, that all sounds very complicated, but if you've been reading the passage very closely, you'll see that's exactly what Peter says. Look at the second half of verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for his own special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter defines what being a priest means for us right there in verse 9, declaring the praises, the excellencies of him who saved you from darkness into light. That's also what Peter means by spiritual sacrifices. It's a strange way to put it, but when you look at verse 5 and verse 9, Peter says the same thing twice, and he shows that spiritual sacrifices means declaring his praises. Do you see that? Holy priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices, royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. What's a spiritual sacrifice? It's declaring the forgiveness of sins and the praise of God. If you only remember one thing uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2 this evening, remember this. If you're a Christian, you have been made a priest to proclaim. We have been made priests to proclaim the excellencies of him who rescued us from darkness into light. That is the hard, uh, confusing bit over. Um, I'm going to recap and then we'll finish. Peter tells us that if we come to Jesus, we will be built up as living stones upon the cornerstone that is Jesus. This building is a spiritual house, a spiritual family, a family determined not by biology, but by faith. The only way you become a Christian is by placing your faith in Jesus. It's not about being born into the right family. This new identity that the Christian has is constant because it is based on who Jesus is, not on what they do. Just like the whole house rests on that cornerstone, the Christian's identity is solid because they get their identity from Jesus. In fact, that's just what the word Christian means. Someone whose identity is in Jesus. This new identity is the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament promises, which Peter has been talking about throughout his whole letter. Just as Israel, the nation of Israel, were chosen, the elect people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so too are Christians. And this new identity 
that the Christian has gives them a purpose. And that purpose is proclaiming his excellencies of God who rescued us from darkness into his marvelous light. Unlike the identities that we try and craft for ourselves, the Christian has an identity based on what Jesus has done, not on what they do. And that is really good news. And in response to that, the Christian has a purpose. The purpose of proclaiming God's work of rescuing us to a world that so desperately needs it. If you're a Christian, your identity is Jesus and your purpose is proclamation. If you're a Christian, you have been made a priest to proclaim his excellencies. This is the primary activity of anyone who trusts in Jesus. That's what we do here every single week at Uni Church. That's why we gather around God's Word to hear from God's Word. Every time we sing songs, that's what we're doing. We're singing about God's great forgiveness to each other and to God and to the world. Every time we read the Bible together, we are proclaiming His excellencies. Here, Peter is emphasizing the corporate nature of the Christian's purpose. He's talking primarily about group activities. That's why he talks about a priesthood, a holy nation, and an elect people. It's primarily corporate here. However, just because it has this corporate emphasis does not mean that he's excluding the individual. What that means is that if you're a Christian, every time you share the gospel with your friends, you're doing your work as a priest. Every time you invite them to church or to campus Bible study or whatever, you're doing your work as a priest. Every time you encourage a Christian brother or sister with the gospel, you're doing your work as a priest. Proclamation is the primary activity of our priesthood. The great news that Peter has for all of his readers is that the Christian has an identity that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken away, an identity that does not depend on your results, on your popularity, on your success, an identity that is based on Jesus. And that is such good news because it is so liberating. The pressure is off. All you have to do is tell people. It's not up to you. The person trusting in Jesus has an unshakable identity and they have an unshakable purpose. We saw this two weeks ago in chapter one. We have been made alive to magnify Jesus. We've been made priests to proclaim him. Now, I realize that there are probably a lot of people in this room this evening who do not yet trust in Jesus. And if that is the case, fantastic. We are so glad that you're with us. You are most, most welcome. This is not, this building is not simply for people who trust in Jesus. It's for everyone. If you're here this evening and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, why not take this year to come along and hear more about him? Because you see, Jesus offers you an identity that doesn't depend on you. He offers you a purpose greater than anything that this world offers. Even more than that, he offers forgiveness, acceptance, eternal 
life. He has earned all of those things for you by living a perfect life, dying a judgment-bearing death, and rising again to prove that everything he said was true and prove that we too can have eternal life if we trust in him. There are people out there, and there, there may be people in here, who think that to be a Christian means that you have to have everything together, that you have to be a good person. But that is not the case at all. Look at verse 10, the last verse in our reading. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A Christian is not a good person. A Christian is a bad person who has been rescued by Jesus, whose identity and purpose is dictated by him. And you too can receive that mercy by trusting in him. You too can receive a purpose and an identity that is unshakable. You too can be made a priest to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus secured everything for us. We thank you that he offers us an identity and a, and a purpose that cannot be shaken. Father, we pray uh, for those of us trusting in the Lord Jesus that you would comfort us in the knowledge uh, that our identity rests in him. Pray that you would equip us to live out our purpose of proclaiming him. Father, for those of us who have not yet trusted in Jesus, I pray that they would. I pray that they would receive his mercy, join his people, and join us as we proclaim the excellencies of him who rescued us from darkness into his wonderful light. We pray all this in his name. Amen.